I visited 42 countries for lecturing and 25 countries for operating. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the July episodes of the Rhinoplasty podcast with me, Dr. Cameron McIntosh. I'm so excited that they brought to us by Suta um, Technik from Germany. Can you believe it that for the European masters, we've got the Germans behind us. Um, the Suta company is fantastic. It's a family owned company. Bert, uh, who's taken over from his dad, runs a brilliant ship there. Their, their big thing is obviously um, bipolar forceps. But also they've got a very cool Curious machine, which uh, is fantastic for turbinate ablation. So if you listen to the end, I'm going to give you the contact details for the right person to speak with. So without any further ado, let's carry on with this episode. In the month of July, we're going through this very exciting topic of the European Masters. It's actually today is one of the days I've really looked forward to uh, an interview with one of the most famous rhinoplasty surgeons in the world. Uh, this man has inspired me ever since I was a resident and learning about um, rhinoplasty and learning about the Stuttgart rhinoplasty course. He, he has operated, um, I think he probably started operating before I was born and he has had decades and decades of experience and he is a, a passionate teacher of rhinoplasty. The, one of the things that really strikes me about him is he doesn't take nonsense. So he, he wants to answer a question and get to something and explain something and not dilly-daddle around. And I, I really appreciate that. So uh, Prof. Wolfgang Gubisch, it is a great honor to have you on the Rhinoplasty podcast. And uh, on behalf of all our listeners from all around the world, thank you very much for taking time off to, to speak with us today. Cameron, I feel honored that you have chosen me for these uh, Podcasts. I never did a podcast before, but I, I, it might be interesting also for many of the people who listen to us, because my history, my story is a, a unique one, which cannot get repeated. Well, tell them. Tell I started. How did, how did you start? I started in 1975 in that, plastic surgery. That's the year I was born. But it was not clear to me when I started in the largest and oldest clinic for plastic surgery in Germany, in Stuttgart, that the specialist as a, the entity of a specialist in plastic and aesthetic surgery didn't exist. So everybody could talk, could call himself a plastic surgeon. Mm -hmm. And mostly it has been max fax surgeons who call them plastic surgeons because after the Second World War, of course, all the injuries specifically in the face. And this is, as everywhere in the world, a war always uh, forces and brings forward plastic surgery. So I went into this clinic and I enjoyed it a lot. And um, then after a while, I realized, well, there I cannot get a degree as a specialist. And what to do then? And then I thought about, well, what can I do? And I went into ENT because ENT was the shortest specialist. That means in a three years, I could become a specialist in ENT. And then I, I thought I have at least a degree and then I can start go back to plastic surgery. Well, the good thing was then 
that uh, I went into the University Clinic of Tübingen, which was world famous for middle ear surgery, and nobody was interested in noses. And this, the boss there thought that when I am coming from plastic surgery, I must be able to operate noses. And as the youngest resident in the whole clinic, I got ordered to operate all the noses. Wow. And then famous people from all around the world came, ENT people, to look at the middle ear surgery of my boss. But then he told them, well, you should show them this young guy or invite him to rhinoplasty specialists so that he can learn something. And so I, I got contact to the most famous one in these days in, in Europe was uh, Klaus Walter. And he managed that I could go to him. Otherwise, it would not be possible. As a German, you couldn't go to Klaus Walter because he was a direct, uh, a direct, uh, 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 direct con 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 uh, competitor. Yes. And therefore, uh, but he made it uh, possible that I could visit him. And then I traveled around the world. In these days, for example, Tom Reese, Tom Reese in New York was famous and so, and so I learned a lot and I learned also learning by doing. And so, because I had to do all the noses in this university clinic, I got, uh, I operated a lot of, of, of a uh, big number of cases and uh, the patients have been very happy. That was the old destructive technique with all these things. And the second point, why I have chosen rhinoplasty, uh, you know, Springer Publishers. Yes. And Mrs. Springer was a patient of our, of our clinic. And I cared for her very well. And she was so happy. And in the end, she presented me the book from Denike Meyer. This is the most famous book in rhinoplasty as a present because I cared for her. Wow. And so, that these two points that I got this book and that I had to operate all the noses, that was the reason that I have become a rhinoplasty surgeon. And after three years, in the moment where I fulfilled all the necessary times, I went back into the old clinic because I had always contact to my old clinic because the head of the university ENT clinic told me that you don't forget anything, you have to go every week back to Stuttgart. So every Wednesday I traveled back, and so there was a, a continuous connection, and so I could go back after these three years immediately as a senior registrar into this field. And though I worked there nine years as a senior registrar, and then I became head of the clinic, as the youngest one with 39, I become head of the largest clinic of a plastic surgery. So, Prof, but is that general very, plastic surgery or, or more on facial plastic surgery? No, no, general plastic surgery. Wow. But, uh, of course, I did breast augmentation, everything. Yes. Uh, breast surgery, everything. But then I realized it doesn't make sense to do the whole, the huge field of, of, of plastic surgery, and I decided to specialize, and of course, specialize to the face, not on noses, but on the face. And uh, so by time I was able to divide the clinic into three 
departments, Department of Micro uh, of uh, General Plastic Surgery, including microsurgery, which when I started, microsurgery didn't exist. Nobody did microsurgery in 76. Wow. Uh, 75. And then the other thing, because we did a lot of clefts in Germany, uh, the, only in the German-speaking countries, it is not allowed to plastic surgeons to operate cleft, no, clefts. This goes, all the cleft patients go to Maxfax. And because we had a huge number of these patients, we uh, founded a department for general plastic surgery, for uh, maxillofacial plastic surgery, and for plastic facial surgery. And so I founded this clinic and this worked quite well because then I could focus on, on my topics because I thought it can't be that you are good in, in breast augmentation, breast reduction, in, in, in hand surgery and all this huge field, the vast field of, of plastic surgery. And so I was, I think, the first one in, in plastic surgery who divided this huge field in small departments and therefore I could focus on that and I could get a, a high level in, in these things. And then when I, when I planned to become a PhD, I, you had in these days, I had to do an experimental work. Mm -hmm. And I did uh, extracorporeal septal uh, reconstruction yes. in, in uh, rabbits. So I operated uh, rabbits, took out the septum, replanted it and all these things. And therefore I have also from the septum and all these theoretical things and the base, uh, base scientific things, I have, um, I got a, a great knowledge in that. Wow. No, because Prof, the thing that always amazes me is I know, I mean, every pot of rhinoplasty is something that you're an expert at and you publish, but this extracorporeal septoplasty. And I always think to myself, and it's a generalization, most plastic surgeons don't really understand the inside of the nose and working on the septum. And I'm thinking, how does Prof Kubish do this? And now I know. So you did your three years of ENT. Yeah, that's it. That's and, and, fascinating. And look, one of the big pioneers was Jack Gunter. Yes. Jack Gunter in Texas. And he had also an ENT training. Therefore, he was so good in gnosis because he had also ENT training. So I, I spent a lot of time with his protege, um, Spencer Cochran, who, who's taught me many, many, many things as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Then so so someday when I operated the nose, I had the septum in my hand. That was not the, the idea which uh, just I had in my brain. It was just by chance. I operated it and just I had the whole septum in my hand. And then I had to, to handle it in a way. Mm -hmm. And then, therefore, I, I started to replant it. Okay, so, Prof, I want and to ask then I what is your thinking at the moment with the, the, the new wave, which is actually an old wave that seems to be resurging, about preservation rhinoplasty and removing a little bit of the septum and dropping it down? I mean, you've been working on the yeah, septum for 50 I, that's years. That's a very good question. That's a very good question, Cameron. I think this is a big problem in the future because you preserve the dorsum, but you destroy the septum. Mm. Mm. 
And this, to revise such a destroyed septum may become a problem. As long as the patient has no problems and you destroy the septum, uh, it doesn't matter. But if you have, uh, you have to revise such a, a, a nose which was operated with a preservation technique, and you have to revise the septum, this will be extremely difficult. Mm. Mm. We'll have a lot of problems. Therefore, I think in five years, uh, there is a, a great chance that we have a lot, total new problems in revision because of this preservation technique. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting. I am doing preservation. I am not against, but there is only a small indication. Yes. From, from my point of view. Of course, in the old days, I was frightened if a, a young girl came with a little hump, little hump and a, a extremely thin skin and you destroyed everything and had to and try to reconstruct it. And this, of course, this can be avoided with the dorsal preservation technique. No problem with that. And there are so many, now in the moment you see so many modifications and a lot of things are called preservation, but it's not really preser preserving the things. But the septum is a big problem. And as long as the septum is straight, okay, you can do it and it will not be a big problem. But if you have a deformed septum, then it becomes, for me, I think it's not possible even if Sabah thinks he can do it, but I think in severely or also in, in moderate deviated septums, it is not the best idea to do it. You can do the old cotton technique, then you can, uh, add, as long as it is too long and bend it by that, and you can cut that at a junction from the uh, cartilaginous to the bony part. But if you have a, a twisted septum or so, I think it will be not possible to get an ideal result. Mm -hmm. You can improve for course, but not an ideal result. Maybe I'm a little crazy because I think uh, you have to straighten the septum as much as possible. But for functional reasons, you don't need a total straight septum. Mm -hmm. But for aesthetic reasons, you need it. And patients who pay, they expect that they have a, a minor deviated nose, that you make an exact straight nose. Mm -hmm. And if you don't get it, they will be angry. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I think it is not so easy to, to use in the deviated noses um, uh, dorsal preservation technique. Specifically, um, if the patient has also functional problems, and if you do a push down, then you narrow the uh, the internal uh, the the airway. Yes. Yeah. And, and this, of course, gives an additional uh, problem and uh, uh, maybe additional obstruct the nose. Therefore, this is, there are many aspects and you cannot look only for the um, aesthetic outcome. Mm -hmm. No, but, well, that's very interesting. Prof, I want to change track slightly. One of the legacies that you've built in rhinoplasty is the Stuttgart rhinoplasty. How did that start and why did you want to do something like that? Well, in these days, I operated a lot of noses and my anesthetist 
He told me, well, you are doing every day so many things, but you have to teach the people. And in these days, it, there was not many courses where you could do it. And the important thing was the visibility, because I did uh, thousands of closed rhinoplasties. And in closed rhinoplasty, in these days, the uh, endonasal uh, instruments, the endonasal cameras have been not so good. Mm. And therefore, that was a big problem. But I, I tried to get an optimum of the instruments of the endonasal view. And that was the reason. It became much easier and better when I, start, when I changed to open approach. But you have to remind, it was not easy for me to change from close to open. But this was the important point why I started this course. And uh, because they have not many courses, uh, I had a lot of, there were, a lot of interest was in, in these courses. And um, then I invited also guests, but that with the guests didn't work so well because if you invite different specialists, each is telling a different theory. Mm -hmm. And in the end, the people are totally confused. Yes. Therefore, I said, no, we have to change the whole idea. Only Stuttgart people will operate. So this is one school. It's not the only one, but it's one school. Mm -hmm. And this works and people go home and say, I can use this and this works. There are other schools which work too, no question. But this is a approved school. And therefore, I started that. And, and it goes so well. And I know now with COVID, you guys have had to adapt and have, um, yeah. have the live surgery and have it broadcast afterwards as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the first virtual course. And, um, but this was uh, my last uh, active surgery in, in, in the public. And uh, I, I made an arrangement with the, with the uh, administration of the clinic that I will stop my activities afterwards, uh, and uh, they accepted that I could do this course for the last time. And in the future, I will moderate it. I think moderation is at least as important as yeah. surgery. But the problem is what people are telling me, there are not too many surgeons who can operate, uh, answer questions, and have not to stop going on in surgery. Yes. If you look in these courses, many of them, they get angry if you ask them anything <laughs> or they stop and answer questions. But to do all three things, you will find very few. Yeah. yeah. No, that's, that's it, it. It's so true. Eh? Um, what have some of the, the, the highlights been for you over the years of the Stuttgart course? And what have been some of the, the funny moments and some disappointments that you found on the course? On this course, I, I heard this question with the uh, with, uh, funny things. And there was, um, I, it is a, a, a very uh, funny story. Yeah. Uh, but it's not with the noses. Okay. When my, my boss operated a facelift in an elderly lady, uh, and she was quite happy and she came to remove all the dressing and so, and I think she came from U.S., and the, she said, well, professor, I'm quite happy with the result, how it looks now. Uh, I have a, a minor, may I ask you another question from a, it's a different problem. No, she was around 70 and uh, she had some 
problems with the intercourse, and therefore she asked for a lubricating cream. Okay. Uh, but my boss did not realize what she needed, and he he uh, he made a prescription for um, silocaine cream. And of course, if you do an anesthetic, this is not what she wanted. Yes. He, he gave her an anesthetic cream, <laughs> but she used it for that and thought it was the total different effect. Oh, no. So did she, she would never have come back to the clinic after that. No, she didn't come back. She didn't come back. <laughs> wow. Wow. Prof, another question I have for you. So... I find it fascinating. There are very few people around the world who've actually designed rhinoplasty instruments. I mean, we, we, we know of the guys from 100 years ago, 50 years ago, but I know you've, you've, you, you use your, you've got your own sets and you've used some amazing instruments that you've designed. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, this is, Medicon is a very small company. You know, in Tutlingen, there is the big industry for the, uh, surgical instruments and these people came always not to me they came for the destru developing destructors for the maxfax and so these uh, representatives of the company they were always nice and i said can we do this or that and in the beginning i designed a lot of instruments without any contract with them i didn't get any money or anything i had no no interest in that and uh, but then by time I had also some very specific ideas and so they made a contract with me that I could develop things and they were very interested so that worked quite well for a while and uh, I, they were very uh, yeah I could rely on them they were really honest but then you know in the same city is Storz company, mm -hmm. also Tutlingen. And though uh, Mrs. Storz, the old lady, she was uh, very interested to get me, but the representatives, the people who came to me, they were so arrogant mm -hmm. that I said, of course, from the business, it would be much better to go to Storz. Mm -hmm because they worldwide, they have all these uh, distributors and all these people. But from the mentality, I don't like it because such arrogant people I don't like. And therefore I stayed with Medicon. Wow. That's amazing, hey? And, and Prof, for the people around the world who are listening, how do they actually manage to get hold of your instruments? Do they have to Google Medicon or what's the easiest way of getting hold of these instruments? Yeah, I, I think you should contact a Medicon company via the internet and then you get it. And if you have problems, you can contact me at any time and I can um, bring them together. That's great. Uh, Prof, now another thing. I mean, you tick all the boxes here. Talk to me. I'd love to know a bit more about all the books you've written and publications. Um, well, the, the, I, I have written around 200 articles about different things. The problem is that I never had time because you see, I, I started in the clinic at six in the morning and left often at nine or 10. So I had, a, uh, I operated in the average eight hours a day and all the other things. So it took a lot of time and I did not have enough time to write. Mm 
So therefore you see many articles with my ideas where I'm only the co-author. Mm -hmm. Because if guests came to me, I asked them to write an article. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, of course, they were happy, specifically if they spoke good English. This is my problem. I did not have English in school. Wow. In school, I had only Latin and Greek, the ancient languages. So it was learning just by myself. And this is another story. Uh, I, as you know, I am very Indophile guy. I have visited India about 30 times. Wow. Yeah. And... Uh, and that was easy for me to speak in India because their uh, language is not so brilliant like in, in England. <laughs> and uh, so I thought it cannot be so bad. And therefore I started there to speak in English. And only when I could give my first lecture uh, in India in English, then I was brave enough to go to the US. <laughs> That's great, eh? <laughs> sure. Wow. And, and, um, well, but you asked for the books. Yes. And, uh, I, I developed so many things and some, some very good ideas like the fold underflap. I developed many years before it was described, but I had no time. And people saw it when they visited me. And then these people, uh, just, uh, uh, published it. So this is a, uh, that was a big problem for me. I could not publish so many things. And then in the end, I was forced from people around to write a book about everything. This is the, the big book, Mastering Rhinoplasty. But I was not sure if I should write it. And therefore I asked Rolin Daniel, should I write this book? Because Rolin Daniel, he had heard me somewhere and he did not believe in the extracorporeal septal reconstruction. And therefore he came to Stuttgart to check it personally. Okay. And, and as a, as a present, he did not bring me, as he said, a bottle of Californian wine. He brought me the, the pre manuscript of the DCF. Wow. So I was the first in Europe who got the idea of the diced cartilage in fascia. Yes. And therefore I could start also as the earliest one, of course. But, and he, he advised me to write the book and he said, you should write it in a, in a way like the second volume about uh, secondary rhinoplasty. But if you name it secondary rhinoplasty or mastering secondary rhinoplasty, nobody will buy it. You have to write advanced rhinoplasty. These are the thinking which I don't have, but he advised me to do that. And so I did it. And then it was my great luck. And I'm very grateful to Rick Davis because Rick visited me often. He was always in the courses. Rick was also one guy who did not believe in the extracorporeal septal reconstruction. He heard when I was in Las Vegas, I talked about and then, therefore, he invited me when he was president of the American Academy. And so we became close friends. And then he said later, when I had the manuscript and prepared everything, he said, I understand everything and I learned so much, but you have, he was ready to bring the Swabian English 
into an American English okay. from the book. So I'm very grateful that he helped me uh, that I could publish it. Wow, wow, wow. It took me eight years to write it. Ew. Sure. And, and so who is the publisher for the listeners out there to get hold of it? Uh, the, the, the publisher of that is Springer, Springer Company. Now, is that because that you were such a good doctor to Mrs. Springer? No, that had nothing to do because the old family is not the owner anymore. Springer is now a, a, a company of investors. That had nothing to do with the old company, with the old owner. Yeah. Okay, Prof. Because this is a, there are nowadays three or four big um, medical publishers like Time or Springer or Mosby or some others. And you have to select one of these and because because Roland Daniel published his Mastering Rhinoplasty, the Bible of, for each rhinoplasty surgeon, I went also to Springer because it should be the second, the second well, book. Yeah. Okay. Okay, Prof. So let's try and change it a little bit. Uh, I remember very clearly a quote from um, Rod Rorick when I visited him once. He said to me, Cameron, everybody's world famous on their own website. So what I want to ask you about is the there are a lot of people who put themselves out to be, and we've got to be cautious about it, to be brilliant rhinoplasty surgeons. And I mean, you've been in this thing for nearly 50 years. What would your words of caution be to people who are just starting out? Well, I think the most important thing is to be honest. For me, the internet is the most dangerous development, as a very valuable, but the most dangerous uh, development in the last years because I know all the guys who are promoting themselves, mm. but most of these are fairy tales. Mm. So many are not honest. If you see, if they report how many noses they did, then you have to go back into a room and see maximum 200 days you can do right, uh, work mm. per year. And if you work, if you are able and select only two noses and you do two a days. So, and one day you have to out, out patients. Then you can have, uh, these are 200 and uh, one fifth back is 260. You can do maximum 350 noses a year. Mm -hmm. And if people are telling they, how many thousands they did, you know, they are not honest. <laughs> You have only to count, yeah. go back into math and, and count. Yeah. Yeah. Therefore, uh, then you know exactly that many of these um, pictures they are showing are not real photos. Nowadays with Photoshop, and I know people, I of course I don't know the names, but I know people who everybody knows that they are using Photoshop. Mm. So this is this is so unfair. It is so, for me, unethical. And this is, these are the new times. And to be honest is the most important point for me. And if you are start somewhere, you have to be humble, humble and honest. These two H, these are for me the most important thing. Then you will, you will be successful. But if you just say, well, I am the greatest. I can operate. I did so many things and so. It is horrible. And I see, well, in, in my uh, praxis have been more than 50% have secondaries. Wow. 
but there have been patients have been operated 10 times before and so many I know I just uh, saw a patient she came from Saudi Arabia and they go to the people who ask most money because they think uh, if I pay most I get the best result but they are totally destroyed mm. and you can't reconstruct everything to a virgin nose mm. you can improve the things but this is the, the this is the crazy thing and the the bad thing in aesthetic surgery is the the money plays such a big role uh, because as I told you People think if somebody asks more money, he must be better. But this is totally crazy. Mm. Right. It's so true. Um, I know Enrico feels very much the same about things as well. Um, Therefore, we are friends because we, <laughs> we feel uh, similar. Prof, so another question I have for you is what are the things, I mean, you've had 50 years looking back, but if you're looking towards the future, what are the things that are, are going to be exciting for you in terms of rhinoplasty. I, I yeah, I'll ask another question just now. Well, I think what is the goal of a rhinoplasty? The goal of a rhinoplasty is that you don't see that the patient is operated. Mm -hmm. That means it must be a most natural result, and there is not the beauty of a nose, there is only the harmony of the face. And this must be the, the goal. And then, therefore, you need an exact analysis. Analysis nowadays becomes much better than 30 years back. But this is even not enough. You see that if somebody has a deviated nose, almost all people have asymmetric faces. And you have to explain this to people, otherwise they will not be happy. Therefore, we have to go. Now we have a huge armamentarium of techniques. And you should be able to know exactly the diagnosis and the indications for these techniques. And you should be able to perform that. Of course, you have your favorite techniques, but with one technique, you cannot solve all the problems. But we need a very detailed analysis. And we must be honest to patients that not all ideas the patient have can be realized. If somebody has a thick nose and a large nose, he cannot get a nice small nose. That's impossible. And you have to tell them. But I see so many because of the money, they say, well, don't tell me anything. I know exactly what you need. I will give you a wonderful nose. And the result is very, is not only frustrating and the problem is, if you are a breast surgeon and you are not lucky with your surgery and the result is not good, you can buy a pullover. <laughs> but if you do a rhinoplasty, you have a much higher responsibility because you cannot hide it. Yeah. If somebody looks in your face, he will look into your eyes. But if the nose is very obvious, he will not come to the eyes, he will stop before. Yes at your nose and therefore you have this great responsibility that you give him a natural looking unoperated nose oh. no that's very true eh? okay so prof of the final topic i want to chat to you a little bit more about is phds so you you did one yourself and i think if i would say 
things are a little bit different in Germany compared to the rest of the world. I mean, I know that if you, if you look at anything in rhinoplasty, you want to publish something new, it's been done in Germany before, you know. Uh, like I did a study on the ALOC cartilage in black people, and that had been done before in Germany years previously. But some, the, a couple of things I want to know about around PhD, because there, there will be some listeners on here, but I feel that there isn't enough PhD research done in rhinoplasty. I think there's a lot of publications. Um, this evidence-based research in rhinoplasty group that Miguel and them have started uh, on, on Telegram is excellent. Miguel himself got his PhD last year. I, I was fortunate to listen to Filio Lukaku speaking where you were one of the moderators when, when she uh, defended her PhD. I'd, I'd love mm -hmm. to, from a listener side of things, hear what your vision is. I mean, you did one. Is it something that, that you think people should be doing? Um, yeah, tell us a little bit more about that if you can. Well, this when I did the PhD, that was extremely difficult because I have been be already the head of the clinic. So in the university, I had to do it as an extern. And an extern, you have two, there are two facts. Of course, you have now a direct competitor, but they don't say, say you are, have already, you are already the, the head of a clinic. Why do you need this title? I did it because, well, it is important that people see that you have also some experimental work and some scientific work, not only technical uh, finesse. Therefore, therefore, I did it. But in, in nowadays, it's much easier. When I did it, I had to do um, for five years, uh, for six years, every year, five publications, in addition to my scientific study. So you can imagine what huge amount of work that was. Sure. And therefore, it is crazy. Nowadays, it becomes much easier. And uh, I really hope that also my successor and good friend, Sebastian Hack, can do that. Because the people who have a PhD or a professor, they look very arrogantly from above down to those who don't have it. Mm. Specifically, specifically in Germany, this is horrible. <laughs> and therefore, I think in Germany, it is you need it uh, and it should help. Uh, Filio's, uh, Filio's uh, work was is outstanding. Her PhD work is outstanding. And there are not so many uh, which are so good like hers. But I think we need it. We have to do basic research to give evidence-based uh, numbers, evidence-based results. And you see it clearly from from these evidence-based uh, chat group mm -hmm. from Miguel. They here you see the real uh, problems. And a guy who is a very good scientist like Sam Most or so, these people they have already a lot to say, and we have to think what they are telling us. And therefore, I think we can be happy if we have people who have, you need a big background in the university, of course, but who can, are able to do basic research for gnosis that we have evidence-based results. Yeah, oh, that's great. Sure. Um, Prof, this has been the, the most interesting 40 minutes just listening to all the things. I, I just, I just want to know who's going to be filling your feet. Sebastian has got some 
proper shoes to fill there with everything he's going to do. If he's going to still be publishing and PhD. No, no, the, and, the thing in Sebastian is that he, he the whole education he got, uh, he, he was with me. Besides, when I had uh, separated the, the units, the departments, of course, for learning breast surgery and hand surgery, he had to go to the other department. But then he was with me and uh, I... I had selected him because I saw his uh, skill. His father is a surgeon, his grandfather is a surgeon, so he has it in the chains. So, and uh, he, that was, is my big thing now, and I'm happy about, or I can leave the clinic because I know what I developed in, in these 40 years. This will go on. And if you have found it something, and your successor has new ideas or different topics or so, then it will die. Yeah. In a, one year, it's over. And therefore, I am so happy that he follows me. No, I think there are not many people who can put like a foundation in place and people can build on top of that, you know. That's wonderful. So, Prof, yeah. My, yeah. my last question for you, I mean, this it's this for all the people who are listening around the world. And those of you who haven't been to South Africa yet, sorry for you. I know you've been here a few times, Prof, and I've tried very hard to get here. And because of COVID and stuff, it hasn't really worked out. But what is for you the nicest thing about South Africa? Well, South Africa, you know how I came for the first time. No, for the second time. The first time I was in an ISOPS course, and it was just interesting for me to go there. But then the second time, that was the most exciting trip or visit I, I there are three four tr trips in my um, in my career I have to tell I visited 42 countries for lecturing and 25 countries for operating wow and uh, now um, um, dr. Meyer uh, from Pretoria he had heard me in Istanbul, uh, and uh, then they had a problem with a, with a guest lecturer, and then he said, well, I can try to call me, but uh, I had no time. And then he, Andre told me, well, I will bring you to two private safaris. Okay. And, uh, and uh, I did this, uh, this course and all the things, and I, I will add something later on. And he brought me to these two safaris. And this was one of the best thing in my life. Therefore, South Africa is always a favorite for me. And going there is for me has a, has a lot of uh, uh, attractivities. But there are so many uh, advantages to go to South Africa. You have no time lag, no t because there is no time difference. Uh, the the English is is good, but I I my, my relations to South Africa are outstanding, and I would leave tomorrow for South Africa <laughs> if I can do that, for sure. No, there's been it's and um, your continue in South Africa was also um, I should operate uh, a patient, and they brought to me one of the famous radio speakers, uh, 
but that was such a horrible case, several times pre-operated, that I refused to operate him in public because it doesn't help. If you do something unique, the people who are uh, watching have no, no benefit from that because it's a unique situation. It's better you do a normal, uh, average case where everybody can learn. So I refused it and I did a, a normal case and it worked well. And then I did privately this uh, okay. <laughs> uh, radio speaker. Wow. Sure. Well, Prof, uh, yeah, that, that's fantastic. I, I just, um, on, on behalf of everyone around the world, just thank you so much for regaling us with these amazing stories about your career. Um, I wish that one day I'll be able to, to talk about these kind of things, but um yeah, it's it's just wonderful. Yeah, we do. I come to South Africa, then we can talk about. Yeah, we can have a, have a glass of wine on a safari and and do that. That will be lovely. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Sure. Well, yeah. From from everybody around the world, uh, on behalf of everybody, thank you very much for your time, and um, we we yeah, we wish you all the best in everything you're doing. Please uh, carry on moderating that Stuttgart course. It's absolutely incredible. So thank you very much from us. I side. will do that. Thanks a lot for inviting me for this podcast. And thanks for all your energy that you didn't give up when we had problems with starting this uh, podcast. <laughs> uh, but you were able to solve all the technical problems. I'm very grateful to you that it worked so well now. Thank you. And I'm sure we will meet, I hope, soon in person somewhere in the world. Fantastic. Yeah, for the listeners, it took us 30 minutes eh, of working hard. So... I hope you guys appreciate the amount of work we put in for making this podcast work. So, ladies and gents, thanks for listening. Um, and thanks, super, super big shout out to Suta Medzentechnik um, from Germany for supporting us. Um, I'd like to give you the email address for Nadine Burghardt. She is um, head of sales, and you need to contact her if you want any of the amazing instruments that they have on offer. So, her email address is nadine.burghardt at Suta slash med.de. So that is N-A-D-I-N-E dot B-U-R-G-H-A-R-D at Sutter. That's S-U-T-T-E-R forward stroke M-E-D dot D-E. So thank you very much for listening. And Sutter, thanks so much for your support. Um, you guys are an international company from Germany supporting the European masters.